0: George Herbert's Death. Death, thou was once an uncouth, hideous thing, nothing but bones. The sad effect of sadder groans. Thy mouth was open, but thou couldst not sing. For we considered thee as at some six or 10 years hence, after the loss of life and sense, flesh being turned to dust and bones to sticks. We looked on this side of thee, shooting short, where we did find the shells of fledged souls left behind, dry dust, which shed no tears, but may extort. But since our Savior's death did put some blood into thy face, thou art grown fair and full of grace, much in request, much sought for as a good. For we do now behold thee gay and glad as at doomsday, when souls shall wear their new array, and all thy bones with beauty shall be clad. Therefore, we can go die as sleep, and trust half that we have unto an honest, faithful grave, making our pillows either down or dust. George Herbert's death. Um, in the other, the literature's prophecy course, when we as we move through the epic tradition, we finally get to Chaucer's Canterbury Tales, and we get the um, Neville Coghill translation. It's probably the best translation of tra- because Chaucer's written, writing in Middle English, so has translated it into Modern English, and it's it's an, it's actually a remarkable tradition. And people never hear the original Middle English, but just for you to hear, you know, we've been reading Shakespeare, remember Chaucer's maybe um, 200 years before, so even if you don't hear it in what I've been reading, you know, when I read from Shakespeare, you'll hear a little bit of that old English. Um, So I'm gonna read the opening to the Canterbury Tales, if you can pull that out. Um, I I wish I'd put next to it the modern translation so you could follow along, um, but we don't have it. So, but I want you to hear this just so that you can hear Middle English. This is Chaucer from the Prologue to the Canterbury Tales, okay? Do you all have it? Should be in your packet. Yeah. If you don't know, if you don't know. I think it's okay now. I got you. You got it? Yeah. I'm okay with now. Are you, are you okay with it now? Yeah, it's I mean, good. I just, every time I touch it, it. You think it's better that high? Yeah. Okay, you know what you're doing. Can you hear me still? Yes. I'm in your hands. <laughs> okay, the, the Canterbury Tales. It, for those of you who don't know, Chaucer wrote an, what is really an epic poem, It's about a group of pilgrims who are on their way to St. Thomas um, Becket's shrine. It's a pilgrimage, and one of the beauties of the poem is that it shows us the whole of an English nation that's still united. This takes place before the Reformation, so it's not a divided England. In In 150 years, England is going to be torn apart by civil wars. Religious differences, I'm not kidding. If you know the history, you know that people are going to be killing each other. Presbyterians want to get rid of the Anglicans, the Anglicans want to get rid of the Presbyterians, the church is divided, they're killing each other. They're they're using religious motives, um, am I putting that right, To, to justify political killing. They want to use political power to get their religious beliefs into practice. That's why we in America have separation of church and state, because we knew what had happened. When people use power to enforce beliefs, you're forcing people to believe what they don't want to believe, people are going to go to the wall. I mean, people are going to die. So that's what happened. But here in the Canterbury Tales, we're not there yet. It's looking back to a united Christendom, a Catholic world. It's not, it's not divided. And he's, he's telling retelling the tales of these pilgrims on their way to St. Thomas Becket's Shrine. The host at a bar at a Tabard Inn said he will give free dinner to whoever tells the best stories. So they're supposed to tell two stories on the way there and two stories back. We don't, we don't get all of them, it, it's just too long. Um, Chaucer didn't complete the work. It would have been impossible to complete actually. But what he does is recount each of the stories that each of the pilgrims told. A knight, a squire, a wife of Bath, a friar, a you know, It's just a very rich tapestry of English life at that time. So, if, if we stay together that long and we all survive, we, we may get there, but just for the pleasure of you hearing Chaucer, okay? So we're 200 years away from Shakespeare's English. This is from the very opening of the prologue to the Canterbury Tales, these tales that Chaucer's going to relate to all these pilgrims told. Just a note. I don't wanna, when you if we get there you'll see Chaucer tells the stories exactly as the people told him except he puts them in rhyme so he transforms them in poetry just an important thing that has to be remembered he unites them he's the one who pulls it all together and turns it into poetry okay this is the prologue (coughs) this feels so with his shoulders soot, shoulders. Juan de Aprile with the sweet sugar's fall, and persa the droh of marcha to the root in all. The veins are bathed in the cool of such power as brings about the engendering of the flower. When also Zephyrus, with his sweeter breath, exhales an air in every grove and heath upon the tender shoots and the young sun, his half course in the sign of the round he runs." It's not. This is actually the English. I'm going to stop. I'm going to come back to this. I'm going to come back. Take, sorry, I didn't look at this until. This is actually the English translation of Chaucer. So the actual medieval English is a little bit different from this, and I've got to get to it, because this isn't it. So pull out Shakespeare. We're going to do Shakespeare after all. Next week I'm going to do Chaucer because I want you to hear. I want you to hear Middle English. English, yes. Is read it? That's what. You can actually read it. Okay, okay, maybe take it out. You've got two I've only got one. You've got this one, and then this one. You've got these two I see. Oh, here, good, yeah, thanks, thanks. Sorry. I thought I did that because if, if so I, you probably won't be able to put the two next to each other, I'm not sure if you can, but this is this is Chaucer, okay? What I'd read from was the English, anglicized modernization of Chaucer. But this is Chaucer, okay? It's on page four, because I've got it here, I'm not sure what that corresponds to in yours, but. This is Chaucer. <sighs> Juan that April with his surest soot, the drach of March has pierced to the root, and bathed every vein in sweet liquor, of which virtue engendered is the floor. Juan Zephyrus eke with his sweeter breath, inspired hath in every halt and heather, the tundra croppers and his youngest son, hot in the Ram is halva curus irana, and small fowls make making melody. That's sleeping all the night with open yea. So, pricketh him natura in her courages and long in folk to go on pilgrimages. When spring comes and everything's renewing, it's a time of life coming back. We're coming out of winter, the birds are singing, plants are growing, and there's this lift in our spirits. When that comes, people want to go on a pilgrimage. It's a time of renewal. So, that's what the whole Canterbury Tales is about. Um, that sleep in all the neck with open yea, so pricketh him natura in her courages, man along in folk to go on pilgrimages. Then people want to go and take pilgrimages. And Palmeiras for to seek a strong strondes to fair halways hallways in strondy landes, and specially from every shooter's end, uh, of England, to Canterbury they wenda. Uh, the holy blissful martyr so to seek That him hath holpen when they that were seeker. Befell, it so happened then, that in that season on a day in Southwark at the Tabard as he lay, ready to rondon on my pilgrimage to Canterbury with full devout courage. Adnichich was come into the hostelry, well, mean and twenty in a company, twenty nine sundry folks, various folks. By, by he ifala in fellow and pilgrimages were they all, that toward Canterbury wolded Rida. The chambers and the stables were widha, and well we were easy at besta, and shortly one that some was to resta, so had he spoken with him every each onna. That he was of here fellow a and made forward early for to rise. We all got up early to take art away, there as Eo devise, as I'm about to tell you." That's just to give you a sense of what we today would call probably the childhood of our language. You know, this is Middle English. It's, um, remember, Shakespeare? So Shakespeare would have something, not this heavy, but Shakespeare's language would not sound the way that I'm reading it when we read it. It would have some sense of, I mean, it would be closer, a little bit closer to what Chaucer's doing. Next week we're going back to Shakespeare. (laughs) Thanks, thanks, thanks. Okay, tonight, um, very quickly, um, I want to just recall some of the things we said about poetry last week, and um, remind everybody that I asked last week, where do we find Christ in Merchant of Venice? Um, because the whole point of this is to see if we can't learn to see Christ working in our world where we don't see him. Um, We started Othello, and I said last time that um, the Venice of Othello is the same Venice of Merchant, except it's under its tragic aspect, okay? And um, one of the questions I raised last week when Othello set guard, remember, is, what are they setting guard for? The Turks have been defeated. Um, why are they there? Um, if if setting guards means anything, it means you're looking out for potential threats, sources of destruction, things that could destroy you. Um, I think the great irony of that scene is they're looking the wrong way. Um, the, we'll look at the passage today. The Turks have been defeated. The storm destroyed them. The great irony is they're not looking where they should be. They're there's this evil among them that they're not even seeing. So one of the values of Othello is that Shakespeare's helping us to see something present among us that we're not seeing. And, um, and I asked this, this question, to me it's one of the most pressing questions of the whole play, is what is it about the modern commercial regime that lends itself to such evil? I made the point last time that if you look at Shakespeare's play, there's only one other character that I'm aware of in Shakespeare who comes close to Iago's evil, and that's Richard III. And he's a king, and, every, and people are aware of his evil. Iago's moving about, and nobody can see him. He is so treacherous. He's, he's operating right underneath everybody's eyes. He's using everybody, um, playing them, and nobody sees him. So the serious question that I was asking, if, if Venice is teaching us something about ourselves, what are we not seeing? because this is happening right under our noses. That's what the play is about. What are we learning from this about ourselves? Okay. Um, this this week I want to go back to the play, except tonight what I want to do is spend more time, I'm gonna read through passages to, to try to walk through, and then I want to return to these, um, these fundamental, what are to me fundamental questions, and I have a couple of more serious questions when we get to the end. So, um, um, I want to do a, a quick review, but before we get there, um, just to remind everybody, um, before we start look at Othello again. Next week we're doing Much Ado About Nothing. Okay, This is, this is going to be really important. I wasn't planning to do this, but it, it, it just makes so much sense given what we're doing. We're going to do Much Ado About Nothing. or Sorry, All's Well That Ends Well. Okay, All's Well That Ends Well. All's, sorry. It's, it's, Sorry, it's just, I, I grieve over what you guys have to put up with in me, I just do, it's just, it, it's just getting worse and worse. Um, all's well that ends well. If you know anything about Machiavelli, you know that the principle that, um, on which all of Machiavelli's works rest was the ends justify the means. All's well that ends well. Shakespeare's playing on that. Shakespeare's. I'm going to come back to this. I'm not going to take much time tonight, but I'm going to take a good bit of time next week when we meet. Shakespeare's read Machiavelli. He knows Copernicus, and he knows the Reformation. Those are three of the movements that set the modern world in motion. Okay. Um, every one of those major, every one of them worked to call into question the medieval authority of on which all people base their knowledge and the, and the authority of the church. Because insofar as the church identified itself with the Ptolemaic universe, that the Earth was at the center of things and the planets revolved around, and suddenly that was shown to be wrong, it produced this period of great skepticism. Whenever in the West, in Western civilization, whenever we've reached a period like that, and we've, we've reached it a number of times, it forces people to go to metaphysical questions. They can't assume anything anymore, They have to go to underlying realities. I hope that's clear. That happened with Darwin and Freud for us. It happened in Shakespeare's time. Um, Imagine if you grew up believing this is the way the world is. I'm not kidding. I mean, imagine this. This is the world the way it is. And then somebody told you, you're so mistaken. You think the world is round. It's flat. How likely would you believe that person? You'd say, absolutely not. The world's flat. You know? Um... People believed certain things and suddenly the whole system in which their beliefs were developed was shattered. So it was a period of tremendous doubt, questioning. It forced people to explore the nature of things and not take them for granted and out of that came the Renaissance and Shakespeare's plays. We're on the verge of modernity then. That's what we're reading. That's why I started here instead of going back to the the Odyssey. I wanted us to begin where we are. Um, Where's it going? Remember Plato's cave, okay? You remember the allegory, according to Plato, Socrates, we all live in a cave, we see these shadows on the wall, and we take those shadows for reality. So as we look at each other right now, we think we know who we are. This is a class, we're working together, we know that. According to Plato, we're only seeing surfaces. If we don't begin to question what we see with our senses, we're trapped in this cave and we can't get out. We're we're trapped in illusions. Okay, we've gone through that so I don't want to do it again, but remember Plato's Cave. The the reason for reminding you of it tonight is this. Next week when we start All's Well, remember um, we're in Plato's Cave. Again, we will be in every work, every work we read. We're in Plato's cave, but we're in that cave under the aspect of France. So we're going to a new regime now in well. Shakespeare's gonna take us to France in Paris, and he's taking us to a monarchy. We've been in a commercial regime, a republic, right? You all know the difference. We're in a, Venice is the first commercial republic. People loved this freedom. They weren't ruled by a king or a pope. They were free to do whatever they wanted. Now we're going back to a monarchical regime. A king is in charge and um, the the society is based on class distinctions. The nobles, the land of the serfs, okay? Um, And what Shakespeare is going to show us is um, the harmful effects of privilege. What happens in a class society. And remember, Shakespeare is writing under a monarchy himself. So he knows firsthand the dangers of of an aristocracy, living under a king. What's going to happen in this play is this woman, this extraordinary woman, who's called Helen, Helena, whose father's died, um, comes to the king because the king is dying and offers to heal him. The king says, no, all, all the scientists, this, this, is a, this is so interesting, all, this, all the physicists who, who, have, who, who work under the latest knowledge of medicine have tried to c- cure him and failed. Helena comes into this world, and um, she risks her life to heal him. And because she does, the king grants her her wish. She wants to marry one of the nobles, Okay. When Helena chooses him, the man's name is Bertram. He's a scoundrel. um, He's forced to marry her and is not good to his word and runs away. And Helena has to pursue him. I I, I don't want to say much more than that. I need to say here. When we when we begin the play, we immediately see that there's something incestuous ingrown about this aristocracy. As you can imagine. If if it's a class society, then people ingrow. It, it, it's dynastic. You you inbreed. Um, and what we see immediately is in this world, everything in the world is in decay. It's dying. The king's dying. Helena's father's died. Bertram's father's died. The king's dying. It's a world in decay. So Shakespeare's taking us into an aristocratic world that is passing away. Its old way of life is dying. And into this world comes this young woman, Helena, who does this amazing thing. I wanted to Beg- use that as one of our starting plays, because in amazing way she lines up with Portia. And what we're going to see, it's a little bit embarrassing for me to say this with them. I mean, if, if you look at the men in Merchant of Venice, there's not much good to say about them. If you watch the men in All's Well, there's not much good to say about them. The, the, men, aren't holding very, the men aren't holding up very well in these plays. You know, and I want to say that we'll see it when we get there. I think men, it certainly was the, I mean, it, I think most of us as men think of ourselves as being manly and wanted to be protective of our wives and, you know, get a job and, you know, in this world, and the shakes were showing us it's the women who are taking, rescuing the men. Um, so just be aware, something's going on here. An old way is passing, it's dying out, and it's this young woman who brings something into it that actually begins to do away with this class stratification. In some ways, we can look at her as the prototype of the French Revolution. That's the way I look at her. This is Shakespeare writing 200 years before the French Revolution. She brings in something more Catholic. She brings in something more democratic. It's gonna dissolve. It's gonna soften those class ratifications. So she she does a remarkable thing. I'm gonna say one more thing and then I'm gonna stop. Um, I hope this catches you. Um, the opening of the play presents us with Helena, this man named Pirolis, who are talking about virginity. A really big thing is made of virginity. I'm not going to say why. I'm going to leave that to you. Why is Shakespeare so concerned about virginity? People today, I think women, don't I mean, they're encouraged, not at all, to think very much of virginity. I mean, People get, have sex, um, abortion is readily available. Sex is, we're in a scientific world. It's just this thing you're bringing into the world. You can just as easily dismiss it. Why does Shakespeare make such a big thing of virginity? And um, why should a Catholic have any concern for virginity at all? Let me just ask that question briefly if anybody's ready to go there. I'm not, I don't, I'm not gonna take it up tonight. Why should a Catholic be concerned about virginity at all anyway? Mike. Yep, I'm not going to go there tonight, but take what Mike just said. I want to be, you already know my position, I want to be careful about making religious claims on works that the works don't bear, so I, but but hold on to that, okay? A, a big thing is made of Helena's virginity. The, the interesting thing is, is what Shakespeare does, we can't make it Mary, you know, explicitly, um, But why did he do this? Um, And this is on the the point of a modern world in which virginity is not going to be valued at all anymore. So Shakespeare is dealing with something extremely important, and it has to do with a woman. And I think extraordinary gifts that are peculiar to women. What are they? So let me just leave those, Okay. So next week, we start All's Well That Ends Well. We're going to France. We're in Plato's cave, but it's Plato's cave under a different aspect. It's a a different ethos, a different world. What's he doing with it? Okay? Okay. Let's um, quickly, very quick review. Um, Poetry. Poetry, as I've said, according to Aristotle, is a form of imitation. It imitates life. This is so important. Poetry doesn't give us ideas. It's not philosophy. It's not, hold on to this, it is not an about knowledge. About, okay? All other kinds of knowledge are about something else. It's an idea about something, a theory, a concept, yes? Poetry is an imitation. It takes us back to reality. We go back into a concrete world. We're not in a world of ideas, we're going back to experience the way we experience it in our everyday life, all day, all night, long. But poetry um, does something that reality we doesn't typically give us or we don't think of it that way. Reality seems to be random, right? Things happen. We don't plan for them, they just happen and we have to deal with whatever happens. The world is a contingent world. Things happen by chance. Poetry takes us back into that world, but it gives us a completeness that very often we don't find in the world. So it returns us to reality. It's like a gift. It returns us to reality to help us to feel things and see things we missed the first time around. Okay, So it's a form of imitation. Takes us back to the world. But it seems to offer us a completeness the world doesn't. Right? We talked about that. If, if one of the plays ended halfway in the middle, we'd say, what's the point? Um, the, 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 the action takes us, it has a purpose, and it's to reveal something, to help us see something, and to feel something we didn't. So it helps form our feelings. It helps deepen our vision. OK? And I, I just want to stress that it's like a gift. It returns us to reality. We go back into it experience it again, um, but this time seeing and feeling things we didn't when we were there. Um, and I've said again and again it's prophetic that it, um, it reveals things that other things don't show us. It helps us to see things about ourselves we don't see. Last week I made a point of going to those words of Othello. Remember when he said, I'm rude of speech? He makes that point. He's uneducated. He, he, he comes from a third world. He's an athlete. He's a, he's a warrior. He's not articulate. He doesn't belong to this Venetian world of education and thoughts. Um, He's an athlete. He's not used to dealing with the mind. He says, I'm rude of speech. And yet, if you remember the speeches that I read last week, his words are among the most beautiful of any person in Shakespeare. He loves this woman with all his heart, everything in him. He speaks lines (laughs) that that most of us, I think, wish we could speak to the person we love and can't. And I suggested last week, you know, what's either Shakespeare's window dressing, he's embellishing, which is what people say, or he's using poetry to help us feel things that are in the depths of Othello's soul that even Othello himself could not. And I'm trusting that we all know that. Very often we have feelings for somebody or something, and we can't quite find the words for them. So one of the things poets do, the great poets, they help us to feel things that are a part of our lives but we can't quite get to. You don't have the words, poets do. So poetry is prophetic in a number of ways. It's prophetic in the sense that it shows us things about our lives in the plot. But it also, by the words that the poet uses, helps us to feel things that very often the characters can't. So one of the best examples in literature is Othello. He says, I'm rude of speech. And yet he says these, he said, put up your, put up your bright swords, lest the dew rust them. What commander could ever speak those words? Put your swords away. I don't wanna, I, I, he's, he's speaking for the efficiency of his men. He doesn't want them to be wasteful. He doesn't want them to waste their weaponry, their lives. Put up your bright swords lest the dew rust them. I mean, give me the commander who would speak those words. It, it, sh- it shows the beauty and the order inside a man's soul that I don't think even he himself could express. Is that clear? So even when he's expressing his lines to Desdemona, what he's doing is showing the, God would see this. God knows the inner part of our souls. He's, ex- he's, expre- he's he's giving r- e- expressing a beauty and an order in the depths of his soul that he himself could not get to. He just doesn't have the language. So it's prophetic in a number of ways, okay? Okay, um, now d- d- just to try to make this a little bit conc- concrete, I want to read this. This is a passage from Alan Tate, who I believe is one of the most important critics of the 20th century. He's talking about Dante and how Dante is a master of the concrete, that Dante begins with a very ordinary thing. He begins with Beatrice in the street, the common thing, the the concrete thing. He's not in his head, he's not platonic, he doesn't believe, he doesn't start with an idea, he starts with an actual real person. If you read the Divine Comedy you know it's about Beatrice and you know it's about Dante. He starts with himself, And if you've read the poem, you know that when it starts, Dante's damned. He's on his way to hell when the poem begins. Um, Tate is talking about the importance of the concrete at a time in our world where we're losing it. Because science is sticking us in our heads. The Protestant Reformation is sticking us in our heads. It's taken away the sacraments. It's taken away the body of Christ. It's all gone. And if Christ did anything, he came to reaffirm the body, take and eat. Taste and see, here's my body, you know. He doesn't say, here's an idea, here's this wonderful religious belief, be thrilled with it. He says, eat my flesh, drink my blood, okay. Tate is saying we're losing a sense of the concrete and the poets are the ones who take us back. So he's he's recalling a story um, related to us by Saint Catherine. Okay? She tells the story of this young man who was accused and about to be executed. And I'll just read Tate's quote. A young Sienese, Nicolo Tuldo, had been unjustly convicted of treason and condemned to death. Catherine became his angel of mercy, giving him daily solace. The meaning of the cross, the healing powers of the blood, and so reconciled him to the faith that he accepted his last end. Now, I have difficulty believing people who say that they live in the blood of Christ, for I take them to mean that they have faith and hope someday to live in it. The evidence of the blood is one's power to produce it, the power to show it is a common thing to make it real, literally, concretely here, not an idea. For the report of the blood is very different from its reality. St. Catherine does not report it. She recreates it. So that its analogical meaning is confirmed again in blood that she is seen. This is how she does it. Then, the condemned man came like a gentle lamb. So she's reporting this moment when this man is going to be executed. She's tried to help him, console him. She helped him recover his faith. Um, and seeing me, he began to smile and wanted me to make the sign of the cross. When he'd received the sign, I said, down to the bridal, my sweetest brother. For soon shalt thou be in the enduring life. He prostrated himself with great gentleness, and I stretched out his neck and bowed me down and recalled to him the blood of the lamb. His lips said nothing save Jesus and Catherine. And so saying, I received his head in my hands. She's not squeamish about blood. She's not saying, I don't want to touch this. She's catching (laughs) his. sorry. She's catching the, the head of this beheaded man, unflinching. It's nothing too touchy, nothing too fussy. The blood's all over her. There's nothing squeamish. I stretched out his neck and bowed me down and recalled him to the blood of the Lamb. His lips said nothing except Jesus and Catherine. And so saying, I received his head in my hands, closing my eyes in the divine goodness and saying, I will. When he was at rest, my soul rested in peace and quiet, and so in great fragrance of blood, in such a great fragrance of blood that I could not bear to remove the blood which had fallen on me from him. You don't want to go wash it off. It is, this is Tate. It's deeply shocking, as all proximate incarnations of the word are shocking, whether in Christ and the saints, or in Dostoevsky, James Joyce, Henry James, I believe it was T.S. Eliot, Who made accessible again to an ignorant generation a common Christian insight when he said that people cannot bear very much reality. I take this to mean that only extraordinary courage and perhaps even genius can face the spiritual truth in its physical body." Flaubert said that the artist, the soldier, and the priest face death every day. I want to repeat that. This is Flaubert. He said that the artist, the soldier, and the priest face death every day, so do we all. Yet it is perhaps nearer to them, to other men, it is their particular responsibility. When St. Catherine rests in so great a fres- fragrance of blood, it's no doubt the blood of the offertory which the celebrant offers to God, cum adore suavitatis, with the odor of sweetness. Because you know when he blesses the the sacraments, the species, what he smells is the sweetness of the wine. Okay, there. And we know, we believe that that's, that's transformed into Christ and his blood and body. Um, it's no doubt the blood of the offertory, which the celebrant offers to God, cum adore suavitatis, with the odor of sweetness. But with the literal odor of the species of wine, not blood, Saint Catherine had the courage of genius which permitted her to smell the blood of Christ in Nicola Tullo's blood, clotted on her dress. She smelled the two bloods not alternately, but at one instant in a single act, compounded of spiritual insight and physical perception. The two are one. Two actions are brought together in the Mass. The actual wafer, the wine, and what's transformed into the body and blood. So our human and divine natures, Christ human and divine natures come together. That's what we receive. Not one or the other, both. So everybody following. What he's doing is affirming the importance of the concrete in our life. And my I want, the reason for reading this is I just want to try to impress everybody with this as much as I can. I asked if we could find Christ any, anywhere, and nobody mentioned the poet, but I want to suggest When you have a poet as great as Shakespeare, how many poets can reveal the depths of a person's soul to actually go in that person's soul at a moment of joy or even suffering? Who has the courage to go there and make it real? He did it with Portia. He's gonna do it with Helena, this extraordinary woman. We're gonna hear things that nobody else hears because they're a part of her inner depths. She's not speaking to other people. When he speaks Macbeth or Lear or you name it, Hamlet, He has has to go into the interior of a person and be absolutely faithful to that person, whatever his turmoil, and still bring that person to a point where law and mercy are resolved. It's one of the points I've been pushing. Is everybody clear? If you read Shakespeare's play, every one of his plays is an effort to bring love and mercy, justice and love together. It's what Portia did. we have got to ask if it happens here with Othello. Who can do that? How much courage? Remember the poem, they that have the power to hurt and will do none. How much focus does it take in the life of a poet to give himself so completely to that reality that he can make it concrete and real for us? He's not presenting a theory. He's going back into life to bear that life so that we can participate in it. So what I'm suggesting here is that the poet is doing something rare. It's this extraordinary gift that allows us to go back into the world, but see things with deeper sight and feel things. One of the reasons I read that I'm not just, I mean, I want to go to, is because I don't want you just to know this stuff. I want you to feel it. When I've read the poems, my hope is that you felt whatever the poet was wanting us to feel. It wasn't just an idea. You know, when we were disc- when I read Supernatural Love about the four-year-old or reading Othello. I'm gonna read it tonight when he's gonna kill Desdemona. I'm assuming everybody's gonna feel that. It's not an idea. We're back participating in reality. And in this case, it's gonna be a tragic reality. We're gonna watch a man kill the thing he loves most in his life. Okay? So poetry has all these dimensions. Um, And it's because so often people look past poetry like it's poetry. just. this thing you do after work or, you know, in place because Hawthorne's got this wonderful line in the in the custom house where everybody's, because Hawthorne's a writer and everybody's going, do something serious, get a job, make money, <laughs> you know. Okay, so um, that's just a very brief review. Two, two, sorry, sorry, Mary, go ahead. Yeah. The last words were very beautiful, you said she received it, how did you say it? Uh, it was like physical. When St. Catherine rests in so great a fragrance of blood, it is no doubt the blood of the offertory which the celebrant offers to God, cum adore suavitatis, with the odor of sweetness. It's the moment when they're sanctifying. But with the literal odor of the species of wine, not of blood." What the priest smells is the sweetness of the wine. St. Catherine had the courage of genius which permitted her to smell the blood of Christ in Nicola Tulo's blood. Clotted on her dress, she smelled the two bloods, not ultimately, but in one instant in a single act, compounded of spiritual insight and physical perception. I can print this off, Mary, and leave copies if you guys want. Spiritual insight and physical perception. Le- let me leave it here. I'll, I'll print it off, and you can have a, I'll print this. Um. The point is, for her, in that moment, with this head, decapitated head, in her lap, um, her faith is so extraordinary that in, she knows that in that blood, she's experiencing the actual blood of Christ. The two are together in a single act. And one of my reasons for reading this is, is to affirm poetry again, because I'm saying that's what poetry takes us back to the world. The poet's doing an extraordinary thing. But it's to remind everybody that the danger, one of the dangers in our world today is we live in ideas. We just remove ourselves from the world too much. Sorry, Helen's not here. Because I think she, I mean, her comment about transactional. We live in ideas. Um, what Tate is saying is that we, we don't risk the body enough in our world. We take it for granted. We look past it. We live in our heads. And when, I mean, one of the points of this play is what, what is keeping these people from loving the way they want to and what's keeping them from seeing what Iago does? Where are they? What are they looking at? They're not seeing what's right in front of them. What's the matter with this world? Here, let's go there. Two quick comments about tonight. Um, the, the, the background, the back story for Othello is two worldviews, two religious worldviews. One is Islamic, one's is Christian. They provide the backdrop because you know that frequently, Othello is called a Moor, he comes from a Moor, he's converted, he's Christian, but that's his background. And repeatedly he keeps accusing the Christians when they're fighting, you know, when he comes and breaks up their fight, he says, what, have we become Moors now? Is this what we've become? The irony of this thing is, if you don't live your Christian faith, what do you become? Moor, a barbarian. That's the critique here. I mean, he makes that explicit with Othello. We know that in the, in the ocean, in the, in the crossing of the sea, that the Ottomites are destroyed. So it, is, nature takes care of Islam. What the Christians don't take care of is what's right in front of them. So the, da- it, the irony, the danger isn't from outside, it's not Islam, it means That's That's clearly a threat because we know that Islam wants to use political military force to impose its religion. I mean, that's doctrinal, it's from the Koran. There are passages that. Um, it's on its way to Cyprus. It's going to make a conquest. Um, the, the Christians don't end up fighting the onomites. The sea does away with them. What destroys the Christians is from something from within. So, but Shakespeare's playing with those two world orders because they're dominant in the West. They're, both of them, are forces to take seriously. Um, The other thing, remember, is we're in the rational regime. Venice is the rational republic. It it bases itself on reason. And one of the interesting things that we see playing out is once God's removed from the world, and reason claims to take the place of God, that humans can make a regime without bothering about God, but it's a fit reason, is a power sufficient in itself to do this, is that every one of the sacraments that we know in the Catholic Church gets substitutes. So it's as if Shakespeare, on an early point in history, is showing that what happens when you deny God is that um, you put something in his place once he's gone. So if you take every one of the sacraments, like marriage or confession or communion or priesthood, whatever it is, you'll find a substitute in the modern world. So the modern world's done away with confession. We've got all these reality shows and the tabloids. Jerry McGuire or whoever that guy is who has that, those, you know, these people go on and spill their lives out in front of everybody and, huh? Yeah, yeah. I mean, we've got things like that. And, you know, live TV where you go into these people's lives and you, what you get is a horror story. I mean, and white people watch that stuff. But take away the confession, what do you have? What, what he's showing us is there's something transcendent in the soul that cannot be denied. Deny it one place, you're going to find a substitute someplace else. The Eucharist. Substitute idols. All the idols that we put in its place. Priests. Substitute for priest today, therapists, you go into therapy and he'll help straighten out your problems. So there's not an aspect of the world that doesn't find a substitute and an irony, a loss. Something that the divine will be lost. But we're in a world of ironies, that's the modern world that, that Shakespeare's showing us. One of the reasons I'm mentioning this right now is because, remember when Othello brings, Othello, I mean when Iago brings Othello to his knees, they go down on their knees and they vow to each other. It's a mock marriage. They vow, they vow their lives to each other. We're watching a marriage. This on top of, I mean, if Othello's vowed to kill his wife, he's breaking his vows. He and he and Iago marry. Why does Shakespeare do that? Because you can't lose those things without substituting with something else. That's why there's such intensity to what Othello does with Iago. He wants to kill him. Does, I mean vengeance is almost not a strong enough word, he's so outraged. And here's this mock wedding ceremony in the middle of it all. Um, And one last point, we've moved away from a world of action, we've moved out of the Middle Ages, the Christian Middle Ages, in which the the chivalric knight was the ideal, a man of courage. We've moved into a world of thought and we can't know the hidden thoughts of men. Now we're in a world in which we can be easily deceived. That's why honesty becomes this important virtue. Because honesty is a virtue that has to do with the appearance of somebody. He looks honest, he seems honest. All the ancient virtues were virtues of action. Prudence, endurance, temperance. I justice. They were all put into act. We knew them by a person's actions. In the modern world, we're in a world of thought. And it's a world um, which is um, given to deceptions. You know, who's there? Who's there? Who's behind that face? Okay? Okay, um, I want to uh, quickly go through the book to get us to the end, because I've got major questions to, um, that I want to put out to you guys. Um, any questions before we look at the readings? I wanna I wanna try to move through the readings as quickly as I can to get to the end. I have a question. So uh, you said about uh, so would that be basically the reason without faith? Say again, sorry, say it's hard to hear you say. Say it again. It's a world of thought. World of thought. Yeah. World of thought. Right. So basically, are you saying that you're going to go with um, reason without faith? You can put it that way for sure. Yeah. I'm so glad you asked that. I, I, I'm going to put that question off if I can, and but but keep that in mind when we go to the end because I want to ask: The is going to kill his wife. You know, we're going to. I mean, I think everybody's going to look at the ending just. With astonishment and say, why didn't Amelia question her husband? Why didn't Othello question Desdemona? I mean he does, but how could all of this have happened? One of the questions, let's wait, one of the questions I want to ask then is if they had faith, if Othello's faith had been stronger, would would things have played out that way? But let's hold off and hold that, okay? But certainly that way because we're watching Christians in this world who claim a belief in, in Christ. They're Christians. Othello's baptized. He's a Moor who's been brought into this Christian world. Um, But we're not seeing anybody, or or are we seeing anybody doing something different the way we might expect if they had faith? They're they're caught in a world of reason with all of its deceptions. They're so bound by it, so limited by it. Go to the very beginning, line 106. What's her? Act one, scene one. What's her name? Pam. Pam? We just asked the question. Yeah. This is that scene where Rodrigo and Iago are gonna stir up everything. Rodrigo, remember, is wants to pursue Desdemona, and Iago's got his purse strings and is being bought off, or being paid for what he's doing, and he's not doing anything. And they break the news to Brabantio, and this is that line where he says, about line 106, act 1, scene 1. What tell us me of robbing? This is Venice. My house is not a grain. That is, this is the rational city. This is the this city of law and order. These things don't happen here. And it's interesting to me that this is a man. Because men tend to live in structures where they have rules, laws. He's a man of law. And he doesn't allow for this. This is Venice. This is a place of law and order. So implicitly, we're we're being shown that this is a place that doesn't acknowledge the underworld, the unconscious, the instincts. We're gonna to get to that at, at Cyprus. That's where we're gonna encounter that dark underworld. But I wanted to look at this, at the next line. Rodrigo says, Most grave, Brabantio, in simple and pure soul, I have come to you. Look at, I, I want, I'd like everybody to look at the next line and tell me what it means. Iago says, Zound, sir, you are one of those that will not serve God if the devil bids you. Because we come to do your service, and you think we are ruffians, you'll have your daughter covered with Barbary horse, you have your nephew's (coughs) native, you'll have coursers for cousins, and genets for Germans. What's he saying? Somebody put that in simple words. (coughs) That's really foul, I mean he's really degrading Othello and everybody else. Go ahead, can you? Well, he's likening Othello to, to an animal. So you're, you're the result of that, the progeny are going to be like animals. It, but I think he's making a generalization about, it's, it's generalized. you are one of those that will not serve God if the devil, devil bid, just somebody paraphrase that line. What's he saying? You're one of those that will not serve God if the devil bid you. How well are the Venetians likely to listen to anybody they don't like? If they don't like anybody, they're going to dismiss it, right? You're one of those that even if the devil told you the truth, you'd... But what if the devil's telling you the truth? (laughs) What if those that you don't like are actually speaking the truth to you? Will you hear them? Or let me put this differently. What if God is revealing something through those people that we dismiss? because we don't like them. How likely are we to hear them? What Shakespeare's showing is that this world is given to respectability, law and order. If somebody falls outside of that category, they're going to dismiss them. They will not hear them. So the ideal for this world is becoming respectability. Somebody, let's say you're a tattooer and you've got tattoos. If those of you have read Moby Dick. If Ish- or Quikweg, you know, walks into your room at night when he's going to sleep in your bed with you. He's covered with cat- tattoos. How many of us are going to feel at ease with that? That's the opening problem for Ishmael. But we're in a world of respectability that is so narrowly defined itself that in some ways it, it may be missing God. Sounds sir, you are one of those that will not serve God if the devil bids you. If we don't like somebody, we don't listen to them. But what if God's speaking through them? So Shakespeare's showing us how narrow this world is, how it's cutting itself off from things just because of its way of looking at the world. Go to Act 2, Scene 1. Act 2, Scene 1, about line 20 or so, the, the, the senators are, re- are reviewing the news about what happened with the Turks. Um, Line 10, a segregation of the Turkey's fleet for do but stand upon the foaming shore. The chidden billow seems to pelt the clouds. The wind shaken surge with high and monstrous main seems to cast water on the burning bear, you know it's going into the heavens, and quench the guards of the ever-fixed pole, the stars in the sky. That, that is the storm, just it takes up the whole you know, the whole heavens, it's so large. I never did like molestation view on the enchafed flood, the chafing and burning, rubbing flood. If that the Turkish fleet be not in sheltered and embayed, they are drowned, it is impossible to bear it out. News lads, our wars are done. The desperate tempest has so banged the church that their designment halts. They have nothing to fear from out external enemies. Shakespeare makes that clear. It's his way of underscoring the real point right now is where they're looking, they think they can rest. The Ottomans gone. They have no clue what they're going to face. I mean, Iago's going to take them apart. Um, Act 3, scene 3. We've gone through this before, but I want to just do this again because it's it's so troubling. Act 3, scene 3 about line, 90. Remember, um, Cassio's gotten drunk. Othello's dismissing him. Cassio wants to go to Desdemona for help. And um, she appeals to Othello and he says, pretty no more. Let him come when he will. I will deny thee nothing. Um, And then she leaves and Othello and Iago are left together about line 90. Excellent wretch, perdition catch my soul but I do love thee, and when I love thee not, chaos has come again. Who speaks words like that? He can't love her more than he does. It's at that moment that Iago says, did Michael Cassio, when you wooed my lady, know of your love? He did, from first to last. Why do you ask? For a satisfaction of my thought. Now, remember I said, watch all the cognates, the, the words related to thinking or thought, because they occur almost every other line. Shakespeare is hitting us over the head. But for the satisfaction of my thought, no further harm. What, why have thy thought, Iago? I did not think he had been acquainted with her. Oh, yes, and went between us very off. Indeed, 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 discern thou not anything in that? Is he not honest? Honest, my lord. Honest, I honest. My lord, for aught I know. What, what dost thou think? Think, my lord. Think, my lord. By heaven, he echoes me as if there were some monster in his thought. He'll go on like, go down. I think thou dost. You can go almost to, for Michael Casio, I dare sworn, I think he's honest. I think so too. Nay, thou were more into, I prithee, speak to me as to thy thinkings, as thou were ruminate, give thy worst thy thoughts, the worst of words. Thought will be the major link tying all of these phrases together. Because Shakespeare's made it clear, we're going into an, an area Othello's absolutely inexperienced with. He's a man of action. He stands up and he fights like a warrior. He's entered a Venetian world, a modern Western world that lives in its intellect. He's going to be undone by it. A line 175 or so, Why? why is this? Thinkest thou I'll make a life of jealousy to follow still the changes of the moon with fresh suspicions? No, to be once in doubt is once to be resolved. He's a man of action. If you raise a question of doubt with me, I'll resolve it. I'll do something to take care of it. It's done. No, to be once in doubt is once to be resolved. Exchange me for a goat when I shall turn the business of my soul to such exsuplicate ex sufflicate, and blown surmises, matching this inference. Tis not to make me jealous, to say my wife is fair, feeds well, loves company, is free of speech, sings, plays, and dances. Where virtue is, these are more virtuous. Everything she does makes virtues greater. She's so good. Nor from mine own weak merits, will I draw the smallest fear or doubt of her revolt? For she had eyes and those and chose me. No, Iago, I'll see before I doubt. When I doubt, prove, and on the proof there is no more but this, away with jealousy." Now he asks if he'd ever watched the two more closely. Now, so Othello's just said, if I have any doubts, I'll clear it up myself. And everything he thinks about just confirms in him his trust in his wife. So, Shakespeare's made it clear this is not an easy thing. Othello's a good man, he's doing what he should do. He's just said this isn't going to work. But Iago leaves and then Othello says about 240 or so, "Um, Why did I marry? The honest creature doubtless sees and knows more more than he unfolds. He must know something I don't. So he's doubting again. Um, Iago comes back, and um, and he begins to work on her again. Desdemona and Amelia come, and he says, "If she, this is about line two eighty, if she be false, oh, then let heaven mock itself. I'll not believe it." He can't look at her and not see innocence. Okay. Now, it's at this point that Iago threatens, or Othello threatens Iago and says, You prove this to me, or you're dead. Do not play around with me. This is the woman he loves. If he doesn't prove it to him, um, he'll kill him. It's at this point that Iago says, as proof, that one night he and um, Cassio, who bed together, who bunk together, Cassio was in the middle of a dream and while he was dreaming was expressing this love for Desdemona. He put his leg over, you know, he, he makes up this lie and Othello takes it as proof, or, or a beginning of a proof. And he says, oh blood, 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 about 450. Oh, that the slave had 40,000 lives, one is too poor, too weak for my revenge. Now do I see tis true. Look here, Iago, all my fond love, thus Do I blow to heaven? Tis gone. And this goes to your question. Faith's gone. I mean, we can say love, but at the same time, his faith's gone. He's convinced that this woman has betrayed him, and he sets his mind for vengeance at this point. Oh, blood, blood, blood. Um, Nevriago, like to the Pontic Sea, whose icy current and compulsive course never feels retiring ebb, but keeps due on to the... Uh, Propontic and the Hellespont. Even so, my bloody thoughts with violent pace shall ne'er look back, ne'er ebb to humble love, till that a capable and wide revenge swallow them up. He kneels down, now beyond marble heaven. Notice how all the language is couched in allusions, referring to the divine, to something heavenly. Now beyond marvel heaven in the due reverence of sacred vow I here engage my words. Iago kneels down beside him. He says, um, witness that here Iago doth give up the execution of his wit, hands heart to wronged Othello's service. Let him command and to obey shall be in me remorse. What bloody business ever. Othello, I greet thy love. They have made vows to each other Iago's committed himself to Othello the way a bride does. What we're watching is is almost like a um, a satanic mass. Truly, it's an inversion of a marriage ceremony. It's a marriage, but it's black because the end of that marriage now is evil. It's the execution of the, the vengeance on Desdemona. So in the name of a justice, a marriage vow has been inverted, turned upside down, the two men commit themselves to each other as if they're married, and, and this will be getting, the beginning of the pact that's going to lead to her death, okay? Now, um, you remember that Desdemona comes at that point, he's sweating, and she takes out the hanky and wipes his brow and and drops it, and, and Emilia will pick it up and give it to Iago who will give it to uh, Cassio, drop it in his room. Um, But here's where I want to go. Um, Cassio gives it to Bianca, the prostitute, and Iago continues to work on Othello and um, wants to confirm what what he has offered already as a proof, okay? Because now the handkerchief is in play. And he says in Act 4, Scene 1, about line 80, I'll prove it to you. I'll give you even more proof, ocular proof. You will see it with your own eyes. Do but encave um, yourself and mark the flyers, the guides, the notable scorns that dwell in every region of his face, for I will make him tell the tale anew where, how, off, how long ago, and when he hath, and is again to cope, that is to bed your wife. I say, but mark his gesture, Mary patient, or shall I say, you're all in, all in spleen and nothing of a man." That is, you're just a coward. You don't have the courage to face this. Dost thou hear, Iago? I will be found most cunning in my patience.'" So Iago steps aside, greets Cassio, and line 104, he starts, because he's asking him about um, Amelia, except that Othello doesn't know that. He thinks Cassio's talking about Desdemona. Um, line 101. Poor Cassio smiles, gestures, and light behavior quite in the wrong. How do you know, Lieutenant Cassio? The worst that you give me, the addition whose want even kills me. Ply does Demona well, and you're sure on it. Now if this suit lay in Bianca's power, how quickly should you speed? Alas, poor Catiff. Look how he laughs at her, because he's making light of what will happen with Bianca. Iago, I never knew a woman loved man so. Alas, poor, wrote, that is Bianca, I think faith, she loves me. So everything that's said about Bianca, Othello takes as being said about Desdemona, the gestures, the laughing, the making fun, even the the coarse language about 126. Othello, have you scored me? Well, this is the monkey's own giving out. She is persuaded I will marry her out of her own love. She's a monkey. So he's degraded. Desdemona, she's, he's just gonna lay with her. This is the woman Othello loves, and he's just watching what he believes is the depiction of a sexual act in bed involving animals, basically, a monkey. And... Anyway, they go on. I, I don't want to take more time than this because I want to get to this question before we look at the end because I want to get to the end right now. This is the rational regime. This is a man loving a woman In every one of Shakespeare's tragedies, we've got a man who has a tragic flaw, who commits himself to a line of action. There's a fault in it, Okay, That's not so with Othello. Othello's worked upon, he's susceptible to this and so drawn to it. Is that clear? He's not a tragic hero with a flaw who's actively doing something. He's being led to a tragic action. So this is part of this Venetian world. Why is he so susceptible? And why, why this focus on, on proof? There's two questions here. Why this focus on proof? Because he said, you don't prove this to me and I'm going to kill you. And he, he takes what Iago does as proof. First when he says, Cassio was dreaming one night and and then now he, he, he's doing what Shakespeare does. Iago put on a play. A play is being held before him, and Othello thinks that it's enacting this this love-making between Cassio and his wife. So, what do we learn about Venice from this obsession with proof, and why this susceptibility to to a play, a drama? This great man, who's clearly a great man, is so susceptible to what's put on right in front of him, a, a play. So let me stop for a minute before we go to the end. This is this Venetian world, this rational republic, a republic given to law and order. And we're watching a man give this, what we can only call this superstitious importance to a hanky. He says, "Um, my mother gave it to me, it was her servants, and um, it had a magic power. And um, it's his association with some kind of magical power in this hanky that intensifies everything that he does. And then Iago offers the proof, he tells them the story, and now he puts on a play. And the, he, Othello completely misreads the play. Completely. Iago leads him through, interpreting it for him. So, again, before we go further, what do we learn about Venice from what Iago's doing with Othello? I guess that people stop thinking for themselves. I mean. They're letting others think for them. Why? Why is that? Well, it's not a rough proud answer. It's a bit long, but they're a commercial regime, maybe untold what to their minds as wealthy as they've ever experienced in their known history, incredibly wealthy, and the explosion of commerce. And it's all based on uh, being able to trust people you don't know well, on, on words and confidence of what people say they will follow through on, because that's how it works 99% of the time. Yeah. Anybody? Yes. Sorry, go ahead. So there's sort of a break with the medieval mindset, which took as a starting assumption, all men were weak and evil, and you assume the are Or fallen. they careful, careful, fallen, yeah. They have dispensed with that now, and yeah. just turned to modernity, and they think the opposite of people are basically good. Good, and yeah. Go ahead. Um, this fellow uh, teaches me the importance of trusting the trustworthy people, not trusting the dishonest but how do you know Every, everybody thinks Iago this is his wife and Iago's called honest and he trusts them to know the difference how so the how difference how that's that's a question you yeah, right <laughs> you, have have, you have to have strong faith to know, huh you have to have strong faith how would faith you help know. here to know the difference in the people to yeah who's who Flesh it out, how do you, how would faith help? Why does not reason? I mean, what's wrong with reason? For um, There's a real issue of trust here. Yeah, go ahead. We've actually announced, it seems like the fellow being less educated and coming from not Venice, not from this world of reason, is manipulated by other. So Iago is the one putting up the images that Othello is susceptible and falls into other's trap. Jago is almost like the king of reason in this play. He's able to um, manipulate everyone, R- t- everything. Yeah. He's using his rationality to kind of um, supplicate all of the different characters in the play. Yeah. And Othello, um, you know, he doesn't. He's not able to. He hasn't been enlightened. He hasn't been able to kind of like see for himself and and think for himself and so he puts all of his trust in this one person. Just to pick that up for a second again, remember we looked at those scenes where Iago's motives change? The very beginning it's, um, he, he was angry because Cassio got the, the job and he didn't, and then later in that um, soliloquy he says he suspects um, Othello of sleeping with his wife. We're, we're, we're watching something demonic. I mean, that's the way I presented it. Othello will never, or sorry, Iago will never lack a reason for what he does. He will always have a reason. He's like the demons, the intellectual. Remember, angels are pure intellect. They don't have a body. He will never lack a reason. He will always be able to give a reason. And um, in, a, in a world of rationality, when God's gone, it, it means everybody is liable, susceptible to reason. And what we're watching is a, in Iago is a man capable of his, using his reason to manipulate everybody. And it's interesting. Watch him with Lodovico or the lords or Othello. It doesn't matter. He will, he will, he will give a reason that seems plausible in the moment to that person and advance his interests. And and it's so plausible on the surface that everybody believes him. Remember when the, when the lords come with the letter saying that Othello's wanted back in Venice and Cassio's gonna replace him and Desdemona comes up at that point and he slaps her, calls her a whore, and, and then the, the lords are so shocked and Iago says, um, I, can't, I can't tell you the whole of it, but there's something going on here. It's like he's, that's how to describe that, it's like he's being careful of Othello in not divulging everything, to show what a good man he is. So it sounds like he's being virtuous, and right at that moment he's manipulating the guy. How is, how is a person to know? You hear somebody, because what he's doing is trusting it's, it's on what he doesn't say that's gonna make the person believe him. I'm not gonna, t- I can't tell everything here because it wouldn't be, wouldn't be kind, let me put it that way when what he's doing is intensifying the guy's criticism of him. He's making it clear that there's something so dark there he can't speak it. There's nothing that he does that doesn't work on reason and people's susceptibility to it because it's a world of reason. There's nothing more. I want to come to this again at the end, but just to close. And it's interesting, when, when you're in a world of reason, it means your need for proof intensifies infinitely if there's no God and you're in a world of re- take, take wait bring faith back in if you live in a world of faith presumably if a disaster happens somewhere in your mind you allow God will do something take God out of the picture you have to do everything yourself then I hope that's clear if you have any fears buried in your soul you're gonna do everything you can to make your world secure comfortable certain What will make you more susceptible than that? You have to do everything yourself, right? God's not around. So it it makes the need for proof almost obsessive. If there's no God, you have to have some certainty because otherwise you're, you're fragile, you're vulnerable to the world. You have to do everything you can to make your world secure. Think about insurance policies today and everything we do to seat belts. <laughs> Maybe I shouldn't go there. <laughs> my wife and I have been feeding, fighting about seat belts for the last 15 years. I put them on in the freeway and at home I, damn state. <laughs> <laughs> pardon, my, pardon my language. <laughs> God. I mean, I hope everybody's watching. The state takes on absolute powers. Take God out, we rely more on things here, it makes us that much more vulnerable. And if evil's at work, then what? Okay. Let me turn to the ending quickly. We've already read the speech where a th- you remember what happens Iago plus with Rodrigo to kill Cassio. When Cassio comes out of Bianca's place and it all goes afoul, and um, Cassio's wounded, Rodrigo's wounded, and Iago will kill Rodrigo. Um, And Othello thinks that Cassio is going to be killed and he's going to kill Desdemona. He's leaning over in this speech. I've already read it. To me, it's one of the most powerful love speeches in all of Shakespeare. It is the cause. It is the cause. Remember, he's looking at the the candle next to the bed and and meditating on the significance of the moment. He can put out the candle and relight it. Once he puts out this candle, Desdemona's soul, he cannot bring that back. Um, and the, the meditation on that almost reduces him to tears. He kisses her and kisses her again. And she wakes up and he says, confess. This is Christian. He's trying to give her a chance. This, I mean, I want to do everything I can to hold on to the, the height of the intensity. He's doing all he can to save her in his mind. She's a whore. She's damned. He's convinced of it. He gives her a chance to confess. And then accuses her and says, you're a whore. You've And, and her response is, I've done none of this. Um, um, line 60, by heaven I saw my handkerchief in his hand, O perjured woman, thou dost stone my heart and makest me call what I intend to do, a murder, which I thought a sacrifice. He's committing, he's, he's taking justice into his own hand. It has to be seen in his own mind. And suddenly, because of her response, he thinks she's dishonest that she's making what he's about to do a murder, a crime. He has confessed. What, my lord? He, that he has used thee. How unlawfully I. He will not say so. No, his mouth stopped. Honest Iago has taken order for it. She wants to turn to Cassio for help. He, he thinks Cassio's dead. Oh, my fear interprets what is he dead? Hath all his hairs been lies? My great revenge has stomach for them all. Alas, he is betrayed, and I am undone. Outstrumpet, strumpet, weepest thou for him to my face? Oh, banish me, my Lord, but kill me not. She asks, wait a day or two. She's hoping for some reprieve to clear it up. Um, but a half hour being done, there's no pause. But while I say one prayer, it is too late, he smothers her and apparently she's dead. Now, here's where the questions get interesting for me. Amelia comes in and says, where's my lady? She hears something, she goes behind the curtains, and she sees Desdemona, who's apparently dead, and then, even though she seems dead, these words are spoken. She speaks these words. She says about line 120 or so. O Lord, what cry is that? That, what? Out and alas, that was my lady's voice. Help, help, oh, help, oh, lady, speak again. Sweet Desdemona, oh, sweet mistress, speak. A guiltless death I die. Oh, who has done this? Nobody, I myself. Farewell. Commend me to my kind lord. Oh, farewell. Now she's dead for sure. Okay. Now, um, um, Amelia's outraged because she knows um, Desdemona's innocent. Okay. And Othello is convinced that she's not. And Othello says, talk to your husband. And she, now follow these lines, about 140. But that I did proceed upon just grounds to this extremely, thy husband knew it all. My husband. Now, going to this question here, how do we know? I mean, how, this, this is Amelia's husband. This is the man she's married to, OK? My husband, thy husband. That she was false to wedlock, Aye, with Cassio. Nay, she had been. Tr- nay, sh- had she been true? If heaven would make me such another world of one entire and perfect crystallite, I'd not have sold her for it, my husband. She can't for a moment. You, you can see her. She can't. She's on almost not even hearing him. She's still processing. My husband, are you? Her mind is thinking. Because he said, your husband, my husband? I, t'was he that told me first, an honest man he is, and hates the slime that sticks on filthy deed. My husband? What well, needs the, um, the reiterate? Why do I keep repeating myself, woman? I say, thy husband. O oh, mistress, villainy hath made mock with love. My husband said that she was false. He, woman, I say, thy husband. Dost thou understand the word? It goes back to language. Marriage. You made a vow to the person you've been spending your life with. I say, thy husband, does thou understand the word, my friend, thy husband, honest, honest, yuck. Oh, God, honest, If he say so, may his pernicious soul rot half a great This is her husband now. She's cursing him to hell. He lies to the heart. She was too fond of her most filthy bargain. This Othello, ha. Do thy worst, this deed of thine, no more worthy heaven than thou's worst of her. Um, I, I want to stop here. She cries out murder. murder. People come in and. Amelia confronts Iago, Othello brings up the handkerchief, and she says that she gave it to Iago, and when Othello hears that, he knows Iago has um, betrayed him. And he goes to stab Iago, He, he doesn't kill him, and Iago kills Amelia and then runs. The men run off, and then we've got these lines by Othello by himself for a moment. Graziano is in the next room about to come in. Othello says, Behold, I have a weapon. A better never did itself sustain upon a soldier's thigh. This is a, this is a warrior. This is the good man who's performed nothing but good deeds all of his life, who loved this woman. I've seen the day that with this little arm and this good sword I have made my way through more impediments than 20 times your stop. He's saying to Graziano, Don't even think about it fussing with me here, but oh vain boast, who can control his fate, tis not so now. It's just like he realizes that all these things have happened, this man of great courage who could face anything down has been undone by them. Who can control his fate, tis not so now, be not afraid though you do see me weaponed. Um, He's not going to hurt anybody, he's too good a man. Here's my journey's end, here's my butt the very sea mark of my utmost sail. Do you go back dismayed? Tis a lost fear. Man but a rush against Othello's breast, and he retires. Where should Othello go? He's never backed down from anything. Don't be afraid of him. He's not gonna do anything. Where should Othello go? Now, how dost thou look now, O ill-starred wench, pale as thy smock? When we shall meet at Comte, this look of thine will hurl my soul from heaven, and fiends will snatch at it. He realizes he's done a damnable thing, and he's saying, In the next life, you will see my soul go down. When we shall meet at Comp, this look of thine will hurl my soul from heaven, and fiends will snatch at that cold, cold, my girl. Even like thy chastity, O cursed, cursed slave, whip me, you devils, from the possession of this heavenly sight. Blow me about in winds, roast me in sulfur, wash me in steep down gulfs of liquid fire. O Desdemona, dead Desdemona, dead Oh, O. Oh. Um, Othello says to Iago when he's brought back, I look down towards his feet but that's a fable. If thou wert's the devil I cannot kill thee. He doesn't see hoofs, you know, because right now he sees that this is an evil man. And I just want to point this out because I don't want to miss it. Iago goes on. He's alive at the end of the play. Vichos going to take him. He says we're going to find a, cur- or a suitable punishment for Iago, but he's alive. Hold on to that. So when the play ends, this villain, even though we're assuming he's going to be punished, is alive. Okay. Now, they're going to take Othello and Iago to jail, Ludovica says, um, you must forsake this room and go with us, your power and your com- command is taken off. Um, if there be any cunning cruelty that can torment him much and hold him long, it shall be as you shall. Close prisoners rest till that the nature of your fault, so the two of them are going to be taken to jail. Othello says, wait, and this, these are his last words, wait, soft you a word or two before you go. I have done the state some service and they'd know it, no more of that. I pray you in your letters. When you shall these unlucky deeds relate, speak of me as I am, nothing extenuate, nothing extenuate, nor sat down aught in malice. Then must you speak of one that loved not wisely, but too well, of one not easily jealous, but being wrought perplexed in the extreme of one whose hand, like the base Judean, that's Judas, threw a pearl away, betrayed Christ, richer than all his tribe, of one whose subdued eyes, albeit unused to the melting mood, drop tears as fast as the Arabian trees, their medicinal gum, set you down this, and say besides that in Aleppo once, where a malignant and turbaned Turk beat a Venetian and traduced the state, I took by the throat the circumcised dog and smote him, that is the Turk, thus, and kills himself. Now, two quick questions because it's, sorry, I'm sorry, two quick questions. Um, what does Desdemona mean when she says, nobody, I myself? We thought she was dead, Amelia comes in, and Desdemona, this is line 125 or so, a guiltless death I die, O oh, who hath done this deed? Nobody, I myself, farewell, commend me to my kind Lord, O oh, farewell. did this to you, nobody, I myself. Farewell." What is she saying? Don't blame him. Why? Can you make any sense of that? I think because she was blameless, and she had, because she was blameless, she had enough love within her to not put, not to blame him. Yeah. At all. Let me put this to, you. say your name again. Joan, Um, lots of critics, um, feminists, pre-feminists, will say, like abused wives, she's just covering up her husband. How would you answer that? Or could you add anything to what you said? That what she's doing is just covering for him that the way wives sometimes do when a husband does something not good? Can you flesh that out at all? Not much. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, she, I guess, given the time of the play, that just her, her life interactions with Cassio could have been taken for more than they were. Chris, did you have something? Uh, I thought, I thought. Yes. Cool. But, uh, so, the two shots on one.
1: Say again? The
0: two shall become one flesh. Yeah. The, the fact that, uh, so nobody, it's uh, I myself, um, because Othello is her husband, um, it's a, a self death, but like uh, they're, they're one flesh. Yeah, one flesh. Here's a question. I, it goes to what Joan is saying. Um, Serious question for me, I think you'll know my own thinking on this from what I'm gonna say here, but a serious question for me, how much goes through a woman's, a wife, who, who love this man completely, as she plays this out when he's going, you did this, you did this, you did this, and she knows, how much does she put that together in her own mind, and my question is, does she die, and on the brink of that death, does she see something so that she's actually become aware of a way in which she, she let her innocence be used by Iago. So that following what you said, that she, she, she says, nobody, I myself. That is, does she come to some self-knowledge in that moment in dying? How much passes before a person? Because this is extraordinary for her to say, nobody, I myself. Either she's covering for him. We say that. Either this woman is covering for her husband or has she seen something on that threshold? If she puts together all the, because I just believe there are these threshold moments when suddenly, you know, a, a hundred lights come together to make a knowledge and you, we see something. Is that what's happening here with her? Um, anyway, I just leave you with the question. I think you know my own answer from the way I put because this is an extraordinary moment for her and I just, I really like the way you put that, but. Last question, um, is there anybody, well, what do we think of Othello? Let me put this more dramatic. Is he damned or not? Because he says, at the time of Comte, when I behold your face, you know, I, I I'll be sent to hell and the demons will whip me. He fully recognizes the, the, the extent of his sin, the depths of his wrong. How do we look at him at this moment as a tragic hero? Is he damned or not? It almost serves as a confession. Cool. A request for absolution. S- say again. It's like, like a request for absolution. Even though there's no request, I mean, you can, you know, that, that it, it's a it's, it's a self-acknowledgement. He sees he's not confessing to a priest, but that's a good word because he fully sees what he's done. So my question is: Is he damned or not? that's not gonna that's not gonna do it in this class Mary (laughs) (laughs) come on can somebody come somebody walk out on a limb here and risk something yes or no I by the way I believe in purgatory too but Mike go ahead Uh yeah. Yeah. A person is damned and a person goes to hell uh, protesting their justification and having a hundred yes. reasons why they, yes. they have done it. Yes. Absolutely. Da- Dante will make that clear. Anybody who reads the the people in hell have lost the good of the intellect. They don't know. I mean that that they're they behind a self justification or or denial or and that's not going on here. Let me ask this differently: um, Why does Othello kill himself? Or let me put it differently: What would happen if Othello were sent back to Venice in a court of law? More a sense would be executed. Huh? One assumes he would be executed. Why? Well, murder is not looked on highly. Remember that he's this great general, and well, let me put it differently, if you're, you're, if you're a lawyer in Venice, because this is Venice, now we're back in Venice, this is your great general, and somebody put forward the case, look at what this guy did, and he lays it all, sorry, lays it all out, will they, will they find in that extenuations? Because his own words are, extenuate nothing, remember? That is, he takes it all on himself. He doesn't want any extenuations. This is a great general. How likely is it if he goes back to Venice that people will sympathize with him because they'll see what Iago do? I don't know. I mean, we don't know. We don't know. But um, I want to raise this question because it, it's a, what, one of the questions that I'm left with at the end of this play is what will happen if he goes back to Venice? This is this great general they depended on. Put Iago out there and lay him out. Will they find extenuations in that? This just goes to back up what the two of you are saying. This is another way of Othello taking everything on himself because, um, because he feels the guilt so deeply, because there's a chance that if he does go back, they'll let him off, or mitigates the sentence. He doesn't want any extenuations. Um, or to put it differently, can Venice, knowing Venice, what we know from Merchant of Venice, Is anybody in Venice capable of doing justice to what's taken place in this play? Can anybody cut to it? Or let me put it differently, who knows as much about it other than the reader? Nobody. Go back into that Venetian world. Self-interest, money, um, self-protection, we know things nobody in that courtroom would ever know. I and mean, it, it takes us into a court. Imagine how many courtroom scenes get published, and we think we've got the answer to them. When there's so much about these court cases, we don't have a clue about. The only people who know the depths of this is Shakespeare, again, and us. So my question is, does, and then I'm going to leave with the question we're going to, does I've been making this claim that the, the poet is the one closest to Christ, or like Christ in these plays, because he's, he's laying, he bears this world to us um, in which he brings justice and mercy together. He did it in Merchant. Is he doing that here? How do we look at the poet, what he's done? At the end, is justice served with a mercy? Because this is a tragedy. There's no way to mitigate this. I mean, he's killed his wife. This is a beautiful young woman. And, and the, this, I'm just repeating the question that I've asked. What is going on in Venice that makes these people so susceptible to evil that, that results in this thing, this kind of an action, that strikes at the heart of love, at the very heart of love? Next week we're gonna do all's well that ends well. We're, we're gonna pick up another woman. She's an extraordinary woman. But I wanna take the first 10 or 15 minutes just to pick up these questions and because you will have had a week to think about them. Um, how do we look at Othello? How do we look at Desdemona? Are there any Christ figures here? Um, um, is justice served with a mercy at the end? Um, does mercy mean li- being let off? I mean, how do we look at this ending in terms of justice and mercy? Okay? Sorry, I I owe you so much time by now. God, I'm getting heavier and heavier into debt. By the way, all's well that ends well is not... Oh, I meant to show you. you can get whatever cup you want but the Folger is really inexpensive and the notes are pretty good it's just a small the notes are very good it's not an easy play to read the language is not easy so just be patient just be patient with the language okay what's your name again Teresa Teresa um, why you've got these <laughs> What's the word probing eyes? I mean you just oh wait you know I get that on the <laughs> um, and it says where am Wait, sorry, wait one second sorry.